the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. In our second hour, we'll hear from Dr. Paul Brownback, author of Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, we were sad to learn earlier today that Republican Congresswoman Jackie Walorski was killed in a car crash earlier today. The Republican representative of Indiana was killed on Wednesday, along with a member of her county's uh, GOP and a member of her congressional team. The accident happened at about 1232 local time in Elkert County uh, when a neighboring vehicle, a passenger car traveling Uh, traveled left of center and collided head on with a southbound vehicle. Uh, Wilorski, the the congresswoman, Zachary Potts with the St. Joseph County Republican Party, uh, Wilorski's communications director, Emma Thompson, and the driver of the other vehicle were all killed. In a statement from Wilorski's office released after the incident was uh, shared on Twitter by House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, it read, Dean Swihart, Jackie's husband, has just informed, has, uh, was just informed by Eckerd County Sheriff's Office that Jackie was killed in a car accident this afternoon. She has returned home to be with the Lord and with her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please keep her family in your prayers and your thoughts. We will have no further comment at this time. I was greatly comforted to know that she had made um, provision for her soul. I know lots of us, we have 401ks and we have all kinds of plans for retirement and the possibility that we might live for a long period of time. But she had the foresight to recognize her need for a savior and had put her trust, her faith, her hope and her confidence in the Lord Jesus. So I know that's a consolation to her family, even though they're grieving, but not as those who have no hope. Please keep she and her family in your prayers as she was not the only casualty in that event. Well, China is running a slew of military drills near Taiwan, apparently in anger after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited the uh, the territory. China's military is running live fire combat training in the Taiwan Strait. It's a, a narrow disputed body of water between mainland China and Taiwan. The military is reportedly practicing blockades at sea and missile launches, as well as combat on land. The Chinese military is utilizing advanced technology in the drills, including J-20 stealth fighter jets and DF-17 hypersonic missiles. In the event of a future military conflict, it is likely that the operational plans currently being rehearsed will be directly translated into combat operations. That's a quote from Chinese military officials. Uh, speaking to the nation's state tabloid, the Global Times. It means that our battle plans has been made clear to the United States and the Taiwan authorities, and we are confident enough to inform them of the consequences of further provocation in this way. And of course, that provocation they're referring to is the visit from Nancy Pelosi and her entourage. The Global Times uh, went on to claim that the exercises would enter area within 12 nautical miles of the island and that the so-called median line will cease to exist, end quote. 
Warships would be surrounding and completely blockading the island, demonstrating the Chinese mainland's absolute control over the Taiwan question, according to the Global Times. While the People's Republic of China has long claimed sovereignty over Taiwan and the Taiwan Strait, the relatively narrow strip of ocean between the island of Taiwan and the Chinese mainland, the Chinese military has frequently sent planes into the area, testing Taiwan's air defense zone. How long this will last and whether or not it will... uh, broaden or become something more serious remains to be seen but those began if my information is correct earlier in the day well meanwhile in a surprise upset tuesday night republican dominated kansas voted to keep a right to abortion in the state constitution upholding a pre-existing state supreme court decision that prevented the legislature from enacting pro-life laws and the first such battle uh, such ballot measure since the reversal of roe versus wade The value them both amendment failed with nearly two thirds rejecting the measure, according to the Business Insider. As of just before 11 o'clock p.m. Eastern time Tuesday night, 62.3 percent had uh, voted no on the initiative and 37.7 percent had voted yes, according to the results from The New York Times. It would have modified the Kansas Constitution to allow the state legislature to pass abortion restrictions and regulations. This is the language that would have been added but was rejected. Regulation of abortion. Because Kansans value both women and children, the Constitution of the state of Kansas does not require government funding of abortion and does not create or secure a right to abortion. To the extent permitted by the Constitution of the United States, the people, through their elected state representatives and state senators, may pass laws regarding abortion, including but not limited to laws that account for circumstances of pregnancy resulting from rape or incest or circumstances of necessity to save the life of the mother. Well, in 2019, the Kansas Supreme Court determined that the state's constitution, when it was chartered in 1859, had created a fundamental right to abortion through a provision similar to the opening proposition of the Declaration of Independence. All men are possessed of equal and inalienable natural rights, among which are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Well, the court decided that the Constitution, therefore, did not permit statutes generally outlawing the most common second trimester abortion procedure in which the fetus is dismembered in the womb. I was encouraged by a um, an email I received earlier in the day about this first um, up or down vote that was taken in the state of Kansas. And uh, the the writer is, uh, let me see here, Craig DeRoche. He's the president and CEO of the pro-life organization that I apparently didn't put the name of. I'll try to look that up here. Oh, um, yeah, it's not on here. Anyway, he writes, last night, Kansas voters did not pass an amendment to their state's constitution that would have clarified the Kansas constitution contains no right to an abortion lurking in the corners of its pages. The amendment was needed in the first place because the ultra-liberal Kansas Supreme Court discovered a right to abortion in the Kansas constitution and one of their rulings in 2019. That ruling stripped Kansans of their ability to regulate abortion, which even common sense policies, such as ensuring taxpayers aren't forced to fund abortion, Abortions, stopped dangerous late-term abortions and notifying parents when a minor comes in for an abortion through their elected leaders in the legislature. The amendment's loss means that Kansas may become one of the most extreme abortion tourism states. 
But what does this mean for the rest of the country? One, the amendment's loss shows us the sheer magnitude of the fight for equal treatment under the law for babies in the womb and a reminder that Roe's overturn isn't the end of the struggle for life. Two, in fact, this is uh, only the beginning. Americans did not accept the practice of slavery just because some states voted to make it legal. And the pro-life movement certainly won't give uh, up fighting for justice for all, including those in the womb, because of the results of one election. Three, the overturn of Roe was a huge step toward justice for babies in the womb, but there's no time to waste and no time to sit on the sidelines. The abortion lobby is angry and ready to pour um, to pour out of state money to stop every effort to protect babies uh, and their mothers. The right side of history, number four, is the o- is the one where we fight for justice and equal treatment under the law for all people, including our youngest Americans in the womb. The pro-life movement must continue to be faithful to stand on that side of history. And number five, the abortion lobby poured heavy resources into Kansas, saturating the already abortion-friendly media and spreading deceptive misinformation. They were determined to discourage other states from pursuing pro-life efforts after the overturn of their crown jewel, Roe versus Wade. Uh, he is writing from the family Policy Alliance, I've got the name here. Together we, with the state family policy councils across the nation, stand ready to fight for every precious life. We in the pro-life movement are on the right side of history. And he goes on from there. So it was an encouraging uh, consideration of what happened in Kansas. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, Dr. Paul Brownback, Ph.D., Licensing Selfishness. Well, President Biden signed an executive order today that will allow Medicaid funds to be used to facilitate travel for women seeking abortions in states where the procedure is still uh, still legal, likely violating the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits the federal financing of abortion. The order will assist the acquisition of, in quotes, reproductive health care for women who live in states where abortions are banned. The president said at the first meeting of the Interagency Task Force on Reproductive Health Care Access on Wednesday. He claimed it also advances research and data collection to evaluate the impact of this reproductive health crisis, health crisis, reproductive health crisis. I would add for whom certainly only half of the equation on maternal health and will protect access to contraception. The Hyde Amendment prohibits federal funding from going toward abortion, except in cases of rape, incest and when the health or the life of the mother is at risk. When asked whether the president's directive flouts the restriction that was established by Hyde, White House Press Secretary uh, Jean-Pierre said the order will cover care that is otherwise part of Medicaid, including abortion care in certain circumstances, as accepted by the Hyde Amendment. She also said that Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade was an unconstitutional action. So the executive branch is calling the judiciary branch unconstitutional in their decision. The June ruling determined that there was no constitutional right to abortion. And while the White House insists the order doesn't violate Hyde, the travel provision is sure to be challenged in court, which means it likely won't take effect for some time. Meanwhile, the Department of Justice is suing to block new Idaho abortion law, the first challenge to a state after Dobbs ruling by the Supreme Court. Few of the major points, the Justice Department filed the suit. They're seeking to block Idaho's new restrictive abortion laws. The suit says that Idaho's laws violate the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, which requires hospitals that accept Medicare to give necessary treatment to patients before discharging them. 
The action is the first Justice Department suit targeting a state's abortion restrictions adopted on the heels of the Supreme Court ruling saying there is no federal constitutional right to abortion. And that ruling reversed the Supreme Court's 49 year decision, Roe versus Way, that established the nationwide uh, constitutional right of women to terminate their pregnancies. Well, the U.S. Justice Department filed the civil complaint on Tuesday. They're seeking to block the new highly restrictive abortion law on the grounds that it violates the federal act requiring most hospitals to give medically necessary treatment to patients visiting their emergency rooms. Now, the lawsuit is the first, as I mentioned, by the Justice Department to target a state's new abortion restrictions adopted on the heels of the SCOTUS decision in June. Uh, that ruling reversed the 49-year decision and remanded the decision-making back to the states, translated the people. The Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs effectively left it up to each individual state, and the separation of powers will very likely be a major issue in trying to resolve this uh, situation. Well, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, or the DCCC, is embracing its strategy of meddling in Republican primaries following Tuesday's upset victory of John Gibbs over incumbent Representative Peter Peter Mayor in Michigan's 3rd Congressional District. Well, in an exclusive statement, the campaign organization responsible for running hundreds of thousands of dollars in ads to boost Gibbs in the primary celebrated his victory and referred to him as a mega extremist that would ensure Democrats would retake the seat in November. Last night, Donald Trump's dream became the GOP nightmare. John Gibbs winning this primary seals the fate of Republicans, hoping to keep this now Democrat-leaning district the DDC, or rather the DCCC, said in a statement. Now, essentially what we're talking about is uh, campaign money donated to the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee uh, going into the campaigns of Republicans they found to be most, in their words, extreme and offensive. So you support the least uh, favorable Republican candidate in order to give the uh, the Democrat candidate that will run with him, against them in the general election a better chance of winning. Now, there are a couple of questions. One is, is that what Democrat donors expected of their campaign money, that they would support the campaign of someone they utterly uh, despise? Um, so there's some ethical question there. The other thing is, is your candidate not strong enough on the merits of their own campaign experience and priorities to win the election on their own merits? So there's that. Uh, again, quoting from the DCC, they, uh, excuse me, DCCC, an anti-choice radical who sided with violent insurrectionists and would throw out your vote if he doesn't like it. Gibbs is no match for Hillary Shulton, who apparently couldn't stand on her own, who has dedicated her career to bringing people together to get things done. Republicans have no choice but to embrace their unelectable MAGA extremist candidate, end quote. Well, Gibbs narrowly came out on top in a race that drew national attention following uh, Mayor's vote to impeach former President Donald Trump after the January 6th storming of the U.S. Capitol last year. The vote uh, drew the ire of Trump, who thrust his support behind Gibbs last fall in a continued effort to oust those who supported his failed impeachment. Well, the campaign blasted the DCCC following his loss to Gibbs, telling Fox News Digital in an exclusive statement that Democrats were responsible for ousting a member of Congress willing to stand up for the Constitution. Uh, But the point being that we want to replace one candidate that we would be more likely to support, although wouldn't directly support, in favor of someone that they consider to be detestable and unelectable so that their candidate has a better chance of winning. It's sort of a backhanded way of, uh, of doing it. And I'd be very interested to know if Democrat donors 
support the uh, their funds being used in in that way. Now, the interesting thing will be if that candidate that they despise actually won the election. I'm not sure what uh, what the explanation would be at that point. Anyway, well, the mainstream media loves to nationalize political races, even though they're local, especially when it's special election or a primary. Well, yesterday's primaries in Arizona, Michigan, Missouri and Washington were no exception. Did Donald Trump win or lose? Of course, his name wasn't on the ballot, but those he endorsed, did they win or lose? And what does that tell us about the likelihood of his running in 2024 or whether or not he would likely be successful? That was the biggest question for the media scribe and talking heads who'd rather not focus on the political misfortunes of Joe Biden and others. Part of the attention on Trump was certainly legitimate, given that three GOP members of Congress who voted to impeach him the second time faced primary challenges. Two of them appear to have survived, Jamie Herrera Butler and Dan Newhouse, both of Washington. In Michigan, however, Peter Mayor lost to Trump-backed John Gibbs, who in turn is now the underdog against Democrat Hillary Shulton, as I've just explained. Well, a couple of Senate primary races also drew the national spotlight in large part over Trump's 2020 election claims. First, in Missouri, Trump held off, ish- uh, held off issuing an endorsement, leaving former Governor Eric Greitens State Attorney General Eric Schmidt, U.S. Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler, and 18 other Republicans to battle it out. At the last minute, Trump finally did announce that Eric, now there were two Eric's, has my complete and total endorsement. That rather amusing bit of trolling probably didn't affect the outcome, though both Eric's claimed the endorsement and the MAGA mantle. Well, Schmidt ran away with victory while Greitens uh, couldn't overcome his own sordid personal story and Hartzler couldn't convince voters uh, looking for a fighter that she is one. After all, Schmidt liked to uh, repeat a favorite line. I get up in the morning, I go to work, I sue Joe Biden, I go home. That obviously reasoned with um, resonated rather with voters fed up with everything that's going on there, but not sufficient to win the election. Second in Arizona's venture capitalist Blake Masters secured Trump's endorsement two months ago, and he cruised to the Republican nomination for Senate. Now, whether or not he would have done that without the endorsement, I don't know. He'll face incumbent Democrat Mark Kelly in November. Masters campaigned heavily on Trump's contention that Democrats stole Arizona from him in 2020. The same, by the way, goes for Carrie Lake in her bid for Arizona governor. Her race against Karen Taylor Robeson is too close to call. The Arizona GOP has been less receptive to the claims that voter fraud was decisive. A Republican-backed review last year found no proof of de- decisive uh, fraud. The Washington Post predictably threw out the media's new favorite election denier label regarding yesterday's contest. Several election deniers backed by former President Donald Trump prevailed in closely watched primaries held Tuesday, the paper reported. As a nationwide battle over the future of the GOP played out in state and federal races across five states. Well, the GOP is indeed working to determine its stance on election integrity, especially when it comes to the Democrats' bulk mail ballot strategy. Unfortunately, this debate is too often undermined by the propensity to either utterly deny any election fraud or to head down conspiracy rabbit holes. The truth is probably somewhere closer to the middle. The entire debate depends on the uh, the meaning of fraud, but most media outlets and frankly, most candidates themselves are too busy screaming black and white claims to talk about it honestly. Well, finally, another much-watched item on the ballot Tuesday was a proposed amendment to the Kansas state constitution, declaring it does not create or secure the right to abortion. Notably, the right does not currently exist in the the Kansas constitution, though the state Supreme Court managed to discover, as I mentioned earlier in 2019, 
in that same penumbra, that cloud that the U.S. Supreme Court apparently saw the right in. Kentucky is next in November, while Michigan and Vermont voters will consider adding a right to abortion to their constitution as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this second hour, Dr. Paul Brownback, licensing selfishness, the subject of our conversation. Also want to remind you that there's an upcoming concert. It is Fish Fest. It is back after a two-year hiatus due to COVID, August 20th at Salem Riverfront Park, 104.1. The Fish presents Fish Fest 2022. Five great artists on the one stage and some others sprinkled in. Toby Mack, We Are Messengers, Mac Powell, um, Cochran and Company, Katie Nicole. Everything you need to know, you can find out at kpdq.com, including where to purchase your tickets. That's coming up on the 20th of this month. Wow. Well, it's easy to feel like the November election is pretty far off. But the truth is, primary election ballots were still being counted just 10 weeks ago. It's been just a month since the 4th of July, and one of the main candidates for governor hasn't qualified to run and likely won't hit that mark until the end of August. We're talking about the... um, Election Day here in Oregon. Summer, the old and increasingly irrelevant conventional wisdom says it's time of political doldrums. Labor Day, the traditional kickoff of the general election campaign, is still a month away. Gary Warner, writing for Oregon Capitol Bureau, points out that political tradition hasn't held up in recent election cycles and has been largely kicked to the curb in 2022. There will be a new governor, at least three new members of Congress and a host of new legislators representing new districts. Also on the ballot are measures on gun control and barring recalcitrant lawmakers from running for office if they walk off the job too often. One look at the calendar shows the climax of the 2022 election is rapidly approaching. As of Sunday, there are 100 days until November 8th, Election Day. The primary called and cleared the political field. May 17th ballot featured 376 candidates, 146 Republican, 134 Democrats, 96 running for uh, officially um, nonpartisan offices. The effect of voting was dramatic, and we cast our ballots on that date. May 17th began the 34 candidates for governor, 34 of them, 16 for the new 6th Congressional District, 10 for U.S. Senator, 7 for the Bureau of Labor and Industries Commissioner. When the final votes were tallied over a week later, each race had two finalists. The primary notched its first major casualty in 2022 when U.S. Representative Kurt Schrader, the Democrat out of Canby, was upset by progressive Terrebonne attorney uh, Jamie McLeod Skinner in his bid for an eighth term representing the 5th Congressional District. The outcome of the May 17th vote also put two bitter rivals from the House on a collision course in the race for governor. With Governor Kate Brown barred from running again due to term limits, Democrats chose uh, former House Speaker Tina Kotek out of Portland as their nominee. Former House Leader Christine Drazen, um, Republican out of Canby, topped the GOP primary field. Well, the pair had both resigned from the House early to uh, run for governor, along with inflation, COVID-19, abortion, guns, housing and homeless policies. Their campaigns would be framed by a personal animosity born from a 2021 fight over a broken bargain on political redistricting. In most years, that would um, 
be enough drama by itself. But last week, the first major debate of the governor's race was held at a newspaper publisher's convention in Clackamas County, sharing the stage with Kotek and Drazen was a third candidate for governor who has raised the largest campaign war chest, but hasn't appeared on a ballot or even qualified to run for office. Let's hope that happens soon, if she's serious. Former Senator Betsy Johnson, a Democrat out of Scappoose, dropped out of the Senate and the Democratic Party in a bid to become just the second governor since Oregon became a state in 1859 to win the governorship without a major party affiliation. Although you could argue, having been in the Democrat Party for all of her political life, dropping out at the final moment might tell you a little something. It was last done by the department store heir Julius Meyer in 1930. The Republican nomination for governor has been won by Meyer's friend, the reform Republican George Joseph. When Joseph suddenly died prior to the election, Oregon Republican bosses chose conservative Phil Meshin, the state GOP chair, to take his place on the ballot. Meyer entered the race as an independent, drawing aggressive attacks from the Oregonian newspaper. He countered that the only thing of significance in the paper was the ads for his Fred Meyer store, or excuse me, Meyer and Frank store. He won easily and served one term. Well, enough of that. Anyway, as of Sunday, 100 days before the next um, the next election, if all goes as expected, the starters for the state's first open governor's race in 40 years should be done uh, should, uh, something the same uh, Labor Day weekend as the Oregon Ducks take on the uh, George Bulldogs, Georgia Bulldogs in Atlanta. So fewer than 100 days at this point. Well, in the 2020 election, Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg poured millions of dollars into the election in an effort to promote leftist candidates and political causes. Specifically, as David Horowitz and John Peraza um, explained following their investigation into Zuckerberg's influence operation, the social media tycoon spent $350 million in efforts to suspend existing election laws in order to promote universal mail-in voting, eliminate or weaken signature matching requirements, and ballot receipt uh, deadlines for mail-in votes, enabling the proliferation of non-monitored ballot drop boxes and create unprecedented opportunities for illegal ballot harvesting, among other measures. Well, Representative Ted Budd, a Republican from North Carolina, recently introduced the Promoting Free and Fair Elections Act, Legislation that would ban the cooperation of federal government agencies with private groups in promoting election interests. In other words, it would make Zuckerbucks, as they call them, and any similar cooperative agreement between private organizations and government agencies illegal. Well, according to recent polling, a majority of Americans, some 82 percent, would support such an effort to get this type of influence peddling out of elections. In fact, even 80 percent of Democrats oppose this sort of election funding. However... Whether or not under the current configuration in Washington, it has a chance. We'll have to wait and see. Well, meanwhile, Joe Biden and Democrat lawmakers have been attempting to do the exact opposite. H.R. 1, ironically dubbed the For the People Act, would expand this private election funding as well as give the federal government centralized control over all state elections. Now, despite the uh, failures uh, to get H.R. 1 passed, the administration has still sought to push forward with aspects of the plan via an executive order what a, that the White House fact sheet says call for each agency to submit to domestic policy advisor Susan Rice a strategic plan outlining the ways the agency can promote nonpartisan voter registration and voter participation. Congressman Budd observed Biden's executive order empowering every federal federal agency to engage in electioneering on the taxpayer's dime raises serious ethical and legal concerns. 
This sweeping directive is inherently partisan and directed primarily at groups expected to vote for one party over another. If passed into law, Bud's legislation would ban taxpayer funding from going to third-party voter registration groups. As New York uh, Republican Congresswoman Claudia Tenney contends, the president has no business turning federal agencies into partisan voting operations for Democrats. It's unconstitutional and would further undermine confidence in the integrity of elections. States are and need to remain responsible for their own elections, and that includes preventing big tech from seeking to... um, On the one hand, suppress information from conservatives and on the other hand, juicing the campaign efforts and reach of leftist politicians. Social media has become the de facto public square. And as such, big tech should be effectively prevented from censoring any speech on these platforms. We'll see what actually happens. Well, saying we uh, we're proud to be here. Speaker Pelosi met with Taiwan's president, defying China's increasingly ominous rhetoric against the visit in a primary payback. A Trump backed challenger beat one of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach the former president on January 9th, saying it's time to wake up. Senator Marco Rubio says communist China is the biggest threat facing our country and President Biden is asleep at the wheel. Anti-cop Cash, the new executive director of a liberal dark money education group intent on combating conservative led school reforms ahead of the midterms, has repeatedly called for defunding the police. Heather Harding celebrated her new role as executive director as campaign for our shared future on Monday, tweeting. It's an incredible opportunity to be leading this organization that's been on the front lines of the fight for equity and inclusion in public education. Campaign for um, uh, campaign for our shared future that bills itself as a grassroots and nonpartisan effort is part of one of the most prominent left wing dark money networks in the U.S. Its uh, launch follows conservative parents bombarding school board meetings in numerous states over what they say is their local schools teaching critical race theory and gender ideology to children. And I won't have time today, but have an interesting encounter with a mom out of Texas a black woman who says she does not want her children being taught uh, critical race theory and taught that they are at the bottom of that continuum with no hope of uh, rising to the top. We'll perhaps share that on another occasion. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Do need to take a quick break. Uh, how about a break instead of a brack? And we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, Dr. Paul Brownback, author of Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. That's coming up after the top of the hour. I want to remind you that Destined for Victory with uh, Paul Shepard is now part of our regular program lineup Monday through Friday, immediately following The Georgine Rice Show. You'll be informed and inspired by practical, down-to-earth teaching, blended with humor from Pastor Paul Shepard. Learn more about the show and the ministry at kpdq.com. Well, in an amended PACT Act, after a partisan controversy, the Senate passed the burn pit legislation to help veterans. That was a big deal last week. And um, fueling the uh, the flames, the White House advisor fact-checked voters' outrage over high gas prices. So apparently people really don't mind paying high prices. And pilot fatigue remains a high concern as carriers try to recapture the revenue that's being lost. The ACLU is advocating for colleges to focus on race-based admissions. I remember growing up as a kid, that was a big deal. Segregation was out 
Integration was in. Now we're turning back the hands of time, and it's being promoted by the ACLU. In the name of equity, the American Civil Liberties Union announced on Monday that it supports allowing colleges to racially discriminate when deciding the admission of certain applicants. The ACLU reportedly uh, reported rather that it had filed amicus uh, curiae briefs in two cases before the Supreme Court, Students for Fair Admissions versus President and Fellows of Harvard College and Students for Fair Admissions versus University of North Carolina, both of which challenged whether or not higher education can legally consider race in its application approval process. The ACLU says we filed the uh, brief today urging the Supreme Court to protect universities' ability to consider race in college admissions. Ending these considerations would ignore our country's present-day inequality and threaten diversity on campuses everywhere. Journalist Colin Wright says the ACLU is actively promoting racism. They no longer care about equal rights for all individuals, only the rights of certain groups. This is a very dark path to start down. And the post-millennial writes that uh, commenters uh, pointed out the hypocrisy of the ACLU's decision to advocate for affirmative action, a policy that allows colleges and universities to use race as a factor in admission decisions instead of using merit alone. This practice disproportionately discriminates against Asian Americans due to their race and ethnicity in favor of other races. So now we have to have a hierarchy of of races in the country. Well, the marriage bill sits in the Senate because Democrats are unwilling to bring a vote until enough support is secured, which is pretty typical in Washington. The Washington Times reports that many of the same liberals who continue to complain about the Supreme Court's June 24th decision overturning Roe v. Wade ruling on abortion citing its 49 years of precedence, um, hypocritically had no similar qualms in 2015 when a bare majority of justices took it upon themselves to overturn 2,500 or more years of precedent and Obergfeld versus Hodges. That was the ruling that threw out the traditional definition of marriage, which until then was all but universally recognized as being between one man and one woman. But judicial fiat, the five legalized same-sex marriage nationwide. The U.S. House of Representatives voted on the 19th to enshrine same-sex marriage into law with a bipartisan vote. All 220 Democratic representatives voted in favor, joined by 47 Republican colleagues. The Respect for Marriage uh, Act, as it's called, uh, would repeal the 96 Defense of Marriage Act, a federal law that defines marriage as the legal union between a man and a woman. The bill faces an uncertain fate in the closely divided Senate. So far, five Republicans out of 50 have said they would vote for it. Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said the Senate will vote on the bill once it has 10 Republican votes. Jerry Nadler is urging President Biden to forgive student debt because of COVID and monkeypox. Although it's difficult to recognize where that quite fits. Economists are questioning the calm, or rather the claim by Democrats that the new tax and spend bill will cut inflation. It's a rather interesting debate going on right about now. MSNBC is sounding an alarm on Hispanics fleeing the Democrat Party. And a former White House aide, Cassidy Hutchinson, who became the star witness in the select committee on January 6th show trials, continued to work for the former president, Donald Trump, nine weeks after he left office, which contradicts her um, Uh, claims that she was terrified and opposed what happened on that day. That, along with some quotes that have now been unearthed. New details on Paul Pelosi's arrest reveals he allegedly had more than just alcohol in his system. In a cash bonanza, Iran has made $44.7 billion in illegal oil sales since President Biden took office. And job openings fall to 10.7 million, the lowest since September. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission has certified the first small modular reactor. 
Is that a good thing? Well, on this day in history, 1492, Christopher Columbus set sail for Palo, Spain, or rather from Palo, uh, Spain, on a voyage that takes him to the present-day Americas. 1807, former Vice President Aaron Burr goes on trial before a federal court in Richmond, Virginia, charged with treason. He would be acquitted less than a month later. 1921, Baseball Commissioner Kenneshaw Mountain Landis refuses to reinstate the former Chicago Red Sox, or is it the White Sox players, uh, implicated in the Black Sox scandal, despite their acquittal in a jury trial. 1936, Jesse Owens wins the first of his four gold medals for the United States at the Berlin Olympics as he takes the 100-meter sprint. 1966, comedian Lenny Bruce, uh, whose brand of satire and dark humor landed him in trouble with the law, is found dead in his Los Angeles home at age 40. 1972, the U.S. Senate ratifies the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty between the United States and the Soviet Union. The U.S. would unilaterally withdraw from the treaty in 2002. 1981, U.S. air traffic controllers go on strike despite a warning from President Ronald Reagan they would be fired. And they were. 1987, the Iran-Contra congressional hearings end with none of the 29 witnesses tying President Ronald Reagan directly to the diversion of arms sales, profits, to Nicaraguan rebels. 1993, on this day in history, the Senate votes 96 to 3 to confirm Supreme Court nominee Ruth Bader Ginsburg. 1994, Stephen Breyer is sworn in as the Supreme Court's newest justice in a private ceremony at Chief Justice William Rehnquist's Vermont summer home. 2004, the Statue of Liberty, uh, the pedestal in New York City, reopens to the public for the first time since the 9-11 attacks. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, China says it's ready to impose tariffs on $60 billion worth of U.S. imports if Washington goes ahead with its threats to impose duties on $200 billion of Chinese goods. Well, as I mentioned uh, at the top of the program, Indiana GOP Congresswoman Jackie Walorski was killed in a car crash earlier today. The Republican Indiana representative died along with uh, several others in her um, vehicle. Uh, She was killed in a car crash uh, this afternoon on August 3rd, 2022, at approximately 1232 this afternoon. Two of the others killed in that crash, Zachary Potts and Emma Thompson, worked on uh, uh, Walorski's staff. Dean Swihart, Jackie's husband, was just informed by the Eckhart County Sheriff's Office that Jackie was killed in a car accident this morning. She has returned home to be with her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Walorski's office said in a statement, please keep her family in your thoughts and prayers. In addition to the devastating loss of Congressman Walorski, it is with a broken heart that I announce the passing of two dedicated members of her staff, Zach Potts and Emma Thompson. They were the epitome of public servants who cared deeply about the work they performed on behalf of their constituents of Indiana's 2nd Congressional District. Republican House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy of California responded to the news on Twitter saying Dean Swihart, um, which I've already uh, said enough on that, um, uh, fellow Indiana Rep- uh, Republican Representative Jim Banks called Walorski a dear friend and one of the greatest public servants he had ever known. I am devastated and saddened to learn about the tragic passing of our dear friend Jackie and two staffers, uh, Representative uh, Steve Scalise of Louisiana said in a press release, Jackie was an instrumental uh, member of our conference, serving as a member of my deputy whip team for several years. She was a champion for the people of Indiana, and she will be remembered for her kindness, tenacity, and commitment to helping others. She was simply returning from a um, 
uh, an event to serve her constituents, and she didn't make it home, which is a reminder that we need to be prepared for eternity wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whatever we think the future holds, and whatever plans we may or may not have made. Our life can end at a moment, and we need to be ready. We've got uh, coming up my conversation with uh, Dr. Paul Brownback, author of Licensing Selfishness, that and more in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll hear from Dr. Paul Brownback, author of Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. That's coming up the next couple of segments. Well, the grand jury has subpoenaed Pat Cipollone in the signal that the Department of Justice is weighing a Trump indictment. The news that the federal prosecutor is seeking testimony from the, pre- the former president's former White House counsel suggests their investigation is, in fact, ramping up. The Justice Department's uh, issuance of a grand jury subpoena to the former White House counsel signals that the criminal investigation of the former president is, uh, in fact, heating up. Well, last month, we'll recall, Cipollone uh, agreed to sit for an interview with the House uh, January 6th committee. It's important to understand this was a heavily negotiated appearance in which conditions laid out by Cipollone had to be accommodated under Justice Department guidance that has long been followed by the administration of both parties. The president's top advisors claim absolute immunity from compliance with congressional subpoenas. Also, as the lawyer for the president, the White House counsel is obliged by attorney client privilege to maintain the confidentiality of communications with the president and the White House staff. So this is rather significant. Now, the theory of executive immunity from congressional information demands is rooted in the Constitution's separation of powers principles. Now, ordinarily, the immunity uh, is aggressively defended by the Justice Department, an important executive branch component. So it's notable that the Department of Justice has substantially refrained from defending executive privilege in connection with the White House January 6th committee's investigation. This is because President Biden, the incumbent, hasn't supported his predecessor's attempts to invoke executive privilege in the uh, committee's investigation. Now, obviously, though, a, a current or former executive branch officials constitutionally based immunity from congressional inquiries does not extend to inquiries undertaken by the executive branch itself. So this is a rather interesting development, certainly worthy of following. And that is precisely what we will do in the uh, next uh, few days, perhaps weeks. My guess is this will all come to a head right around conveniently the midterm elections. Uh, we'll see. Well, Republicans have a large showing at gubernatorial polls. Um, Derek Schmidt wins Republican nomination for governor in Kansas. The primary election on Tuesday night will face incumbent Governor Laura Kelly in November. Kelly easily won the Democratic nomination for governor in Kansas primary election with 95 percent of the vote over Richard Karnowski. Schmidt took approximately 80 percent of the vote over challenger Erilyn Briggs. The New York Times says that Tudor Dixon, a conservative media personality with the political backing of Michigan's powerful DeVos family, won the state's Republican primary for governor on on Tuesday. She will advance to the general election against Governor Gretchen Whitmer, a first term Democrat who was on the short list to be Joseph Biden's running mate in the summer of 2020. Lots of election results. We'll try to cover them 
throughout the uh, the remainder of the day. The Missouri Senate primary sees the Attorney General Eric Schmidt overcome scandal-ridden Eric Greitens. And while this may not seem all that important to us here on the West Coast, it is significant to give us some indication of the midterm elections and what flavor they are likely to uh, to end up being Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt won the Republican primary for U.S. Senate on Tuesday with surprising ease, ending months of worry among GOP leaders that scandal scarred former Governor Eric Greitens might win the primary, but jeopardize what should be a reliably red seat in November. Uh, Trudy Bush Valentine, a nurse and philanthropist who entered uh, Missouri's Democratic primary in the U.S. Senate race late, will move on to November after um, defeating Marine veteran Lucas Kuntz and nine others on Tuesday. Kansas City, um, a former uh, Kansas City mayor, Mark Holland, will face Republican Senator Jerry Moran in the fall of uh, after winning Tuesday's Democratic primary. Holland had 41 percent of the vote and again, other Election results as well. Uh, Jerry Nadler is urging President Biden to forgive student debt because of covid and monkeypox. Now, the connection I'm having a hard time linking, but Katie Pavlich points out that President Joe Biden is expected to make a decision about the cancellation of student loan debt by the end of the month. Since taking office in January, the president has issued a number of extensions on payment moratoriums and uh, the left of his party is demanding he reallocate the cost to taxpayers. But now Democrat Jerry Nadler is arguing that Biden should reallocate the uh, uh, the payments to taxpayers because of the monkeypox outbreak. This is a weird one. Not sure what monkeypox has to do with getting working families to pay for rich kids, grad school, student loan debt. But there you have it. New York Times' Thomas Friedman writes, there is deep mistrust between the White House and President Volodymyr Zelensky. Well, the revealing paragraph in uh, Tom Friedman's column read as follows. New York Times, the Ukraine war is not over. And privately, U.S. officials are a lot more concerned about Ukraine's leadership than they are letting on. There is deep mistrust between the White House and President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine, considerably more than has been reported. And there is funny business going on in Kiev. On the 17th of July, Zelensky fired his country's prosecutor general and the leader of its domestic intelligence agency, the most significant shakeup in his government since the Russian invasion in February. It would be the equivalent of Biden firing Merrick Garland and Bill Burns on the same day. But I have still not seen any reporting that convincingly explains what that was all about. It is as if we don't want to look too closely under the hood in Kiev for fear of what corruption or antics we might see when we have invested so much there. Again, uh, from the New York Times, hot airways in saying it was uh, odd that Zelensky fired two high ranking officials in the middle of a hot war, especially since one of them was a childhood friend. He claimed that the departments they oversaw were infested with collaborators. There have been reports since the start of the war that Russian intelligence spent years before the invasion, quietly bribing Ukrainian officials at various levels of government to switch sides once the Kremlin finally makes its move. They didn't get much return on that investment, but they may have gotten some uh, as um, Kyrgyzstan province in the southern flipped quickly after the war began. It's conceivable that some officials in Zelensky's own government are on the take and that the Ukrainians have gotten wise to it only recently. Sort of an interesting inside speculation. I wouldn't even go so far as to say take. Well, Geico Insurance closed all of their offices in California, resulting in hundreds of layoffs. Geico is reportedly closing all 38 of its agent offices in California, laid off hundreds of employees, and will no longer sell insurance through telephone agents in the state. 
Californians can still obtain GEICO policies in the state, but only through a computer or a mobile device posing a challenge for those who are not technically proficient. Well, the precise reasons for the closure in California and massive layoffs remains unclear. Fox Business reached out to the company for more information in a statement to the Sacramento Bee. A company spokesman declined to elaborate on the changes, but clarified that Geico was not leaving the Golden State. President Biden's misery index since 1948, economists have used the so-called misery index as an indicator of how poorly the average American is uh, faring economically. The measurement is calculated by combining the unemployment rate and annual inflation rate. However, like Joe Biden has done with redefining recession, the government has long been playing semantics with both unemployment Headline unemployment versus actual unemployment and inflation. Consumer price index has been distorted to hide the true inflation rate. Well, the point is that even the spiking headline misery index fails to account for the genuine level of growing misery under the current administration. For example, food costs, gas prices and interest rates are all rising to the point of preventing many from being able to afford to purchase a home. Meanwhile, a completely out of touch administration is telling Americans this is the best economy in history. So as bad as Biden is doing on the official misery index, on the actual misery index, he's doing even worse. Democrats are throwing President Biden overboard. The Democrats have been quietly wrestling with their Joe Biden problem. The man holds the record for lowest approval rating for any modern era president. And that's saying a lot, given the previous administration. He effectively hangs like an albatross around the necks of his party, many of whom are almost literally running away from him. When the president recently visited Ohio to stump for Democrats, Senate candidate Tim Ryan conspicuously did not appear with the president, citing scheduling conflicts. In Georgia, Democrat Senator Raphael Warnock, who is in a tight race with Republican challenger Herschel Walker, likewise distanced himself from the president by avoiding giving an answer to the president's performance. In Pennsylvania, Democrat Senate candidate John Fetterman refused to answer if he would appear with Biden on stage before the election. Meanwhile, a couple of Democrat lawmakers have publicly told the president not to seek reelection. Representative Carolyn Maloney responded to a question as to whether Biden should run again by stating, I don't believe he is running for reelection. Team Biden is boosting abortion. Today, the president signed his second executive order relating to abortion following the Supreme Court ruling on Dobbs that overturned Roe. The order is a bit vague as it simply directs Health and Human Service Secretary to consider how to make sure women have access to abortion. The order further instructs HHS to accurately measure the impact that lack of abortion access has on women's health. But the Justice Department is also on the warpath against states with laws protecting the life of the preborn. Attorney General Merrick Garland has directed the Department of Justice to sue the state of Idaho uh, over its strict abortion law. We're following that story. Coming up, a conversation with Paul Brownback. Dr. Brownback is the author of Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Next, we're going to review a book titled Licensing Selfishness. 
The Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. It's a fascinating book because it draws our attention to a human and natural trait that, if licensed, leads us in a direction that ultimately will lead not only to personal but national destruction. My guest is Paul Brownback. He is a Ph.D. He graduated from West Point, has a Master of Divinity degree from Talbert Theological Seminary, a Master of Human Relations from University of Oklahoma, and a Ph.D. from New York University. He has served as a pastor, a counselor, a college president. He's published two books, The Danger of Self-Love, which examines the contemporary self-esteem movement from a biblical perspective, and Counterattack. He writes a weekly article on moral, social, and political issues for his blog, HopeThat'sReal.com. And today he joins us to talk about his latest book, Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. Dr. Brownback, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Georgine. It's a real privilege. You make the point that the uh, human inclination towards selfishness is not a new story. It begins really right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. But when you license selfishness, when you uh, elevate it to a virtue, uh, the damage it can cause, um, we're really seeing some of that even today. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean uh, with the, uh, the, the phrase licensing selfishness? Well, Georgina, I believe that uh, the secular culture as well as evangelicals have adopted a concept that really gives us permission to live selfishly. It's saying that it's okay to uh, live any way we want to live. It's okay to make choices that benefit uh, ourselves, even at the expense of other people. As you pointed out, uh, human beings have uh, that inclination naturally. And, uh, and when we license it, when we say it's okay, then we really do a lot of damage. You write that the current proliferation of selfishness doesn't merely result from normal uh, cultural erosion. It is licensed by an ideology of selfishness and interconnected ideology, psychology, and theology that unleashes selfishness in both secular society and the evangelical church. Selfishness comprises a powerful human inclination without any encouragement. An ideology that protects and even promotes selfishness has put it on steroids, creating societal chaos. And you give uh, several examples of what this selfishness looks like. It's not just elevating one's own uh, personal interests, but it's also um, having an impact on the value of others, the the value of others who may hold a different point of view, who may um, want to do things differently. They are devalued to the point where my selfish interests uh, makes them a a non-entity, essentially. You know, the the concept that that I believe is so destructive, one that is accepted by secular society and one that's accepted by evangelicals, and uh, surprising to many of your listeners, I'm sure, but the concept is that of unconditional love and acceptance. And that has become the hallmark of, of our secular society. Actually, the, the whole aspect of unconditional love, unconditional acceptance, is the, the ultimate moral principle that guides our society. Uh, accepting is always right. Not accepting is always wrong, and so we see this playing out in uh, oh abortion. You can you mm-hmm. can uh, you know, kill your child, and uh, and uh, and I accept you. Or uh, you can uh, be a transgender, and a transgender male uh, has to be accepted unconditionally. Therefore, uh, 
he must be accepted uh, participating in women's sports. And so you have a, a girl who has uh, worked her heart out to excel in a sport and then have this biological male come along and, and steal her championship from her, and all in the name of unconditional acceptance. We must accept this biological male unconditionally, which means that we must allow him to participate. We, we see this unconditional acceptance at work in many aspects of our secular society and also in evangelical society, and it's, it's extremely destructive, as you pointed out, when we, we when we talk about unconditional acceptance, that sounds innocent enough. Well, I accept you. I love you unconditionally. However, when we say that, in essence, we're telling that person, uh, you can live any way you want to without consequences. I accept you just the same regardless of how you live, which means that uh, you accept them even if they hurt other people. And therefore, when you say, I accept you unconditionally, you're saying, you're the only person that really matters. The people that you hurt really don't matter. And, and therefore, it's a very destructive concept, and it's wrecking havoc both in secular society and uh, in evangelical society. I suppose it's not surprising that secular society would move, um, would co-op, in fact, concepts that they believe reflect a Christian worldview and move in a direction that uh, again, elevates selfishness to uh, a virtue. But within the evangelical church, I suppose that is more surprising to me, given the fruit of the Spirit and what the scriptures teach. Is there a, a belief that unconditional love and acceptance is another way of expressing the concept of grace? And is that what God's accepting and uh, receiving us unto himself, this holy God that we serve, is that what uh, his grace is? Well, I believe that that is how this concept actually made its way into evangelical mindset. Uh, it's not, this concept, unconditional love and acceptance, not found in Scripture. The, the term is not found in Scripture, nor is the concept. Uh, it, it probably made its way into the evangelical world, first of all, through, through the Jesus people. And, and Jesus people did a lot of good things. They brought a lot of vitality, a lot of evangelical zeal to, to the evangelical church, but they also dragged along with them uh, the, uh, the ideologies of the hippie movement, and this was one of the, one of the ideologies, and so uh, they, they were responsible, I think, at least to some extent, in introducing it to the evangelical church, and, and baby boomers, likewise, they, they uh, picked up this concept in, in schools and entertainment industry uh, from the uh, mainstream media, and, and therefore they uh, <clears throat> brought it into the evangelical uh, uh, community. But the major conduit, I believe, was uh, uh, evangelical psychology. Back in the 70s and 80s, we find the advent of a, a strong... Uh, presence of evangelical psychology. And back in that day, uh, this concept of unconditional love and acceptance was a major uh, force within secular psychology, and that's where they got their training in, in, in this perspective. And so uh, as evangelicals began to uh, embrace psychology, they 
they picked it up from there. But but as you mentioned, <clears throat> and one major reason why we felt at home with the concept of unconditional love and acceptance is that it, it seems to reflect grace. I, I mean, grace is God accepting us apart from works. And so at least from a casual perspective, uh, well, that would seem to say, well, he accepts us unconditionally. And that's not accurate. Uh, there are conditions to grace. Grace is, is not unconditional. For example, saving saving grace, uh, the, the condition is faith. If we didn't have a condition, everybody would be saved. But Scripture says, no, you receive God's grace when you you uh, exercise saving faith. So, so grace is a conditional term. But uh, again, a more casual understanding of grace uh, gives people the impression, oh, grace and unconditional acceptance seem to be the same thing. And I, I believe even evangelicals have equated the two, and uh, that's what's uh, prompted us to buy into this error. Now, we need to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, we're talking with Dr. Paul Brownback, his latest book, Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology. He has a fascinating history of how it made its way into uh, the church as well as into the broader secular society and the impact on our culture, on entertainment, and on our national life. We'll continue that conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Paul Brownback. He's the author of Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America, a fascinating uh, book that gives a bit of history and context to understanding this notion. Now, is this uh, the disagreement between Calvinism and Arminian uh, point of view uh, from a theological point of view? Is it a theological question, uh, or is it a, a question of culture influencing theology in general within the evangelical church? Well, it really doesn't get into the uh, Arminian-Calvinist issue. It, it uh, actually has been uh, adopted by uh, people with both of those perspectives, and mm-hmm. it doesn't really get into that per se. It's, it's more of an issue of uh, Christian living. And uh, <clears throat> you, you see, if if we believe that a person is accepted unconditionally, that takes us to some other beliefs that we bought into. One of them is the idea that we don't have to perform to please God or be accepted by Him, and that's that's a, a common cliche among evangelicals today. Well, you non-performance-based Christianity, and they. They talk about, well, we don't want to be dragged back into performance-based Christianity. And, uh, well, non-performance-based Christianity is an outgrowth of unconditional acceptance. If if we accept somebody unconditionally, that means that that they don't have to live a certain way. They don't have to perform for our acceptance. And so, likewise, if if God accepts them unconditionally— that means that uh, that they don't have to perform to please God. It doesn't matter how they live. God is just as pleased with them. There's a cliche today. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more and nothing you can do to make God love you less. And so, so your lifestyle has nothing to do with God's attitude 
afford you. you another way uh, that that is expressed today is that when God uh, looks on you, he doesn't see uh, your performance. He, or some people say, well, he doesn't see your dirt. He, he doesn't see your sinfulness. He just sees the righteousness of Christ. And, and you know, Georgine, when you look at Scripture, you just, you just see virtually hundreds of passages that say that this is not the case. For example, you take the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Here the church just gets kicked off. We have the Pentecost. We have all kind of people becoming coming to the Lord and, and so forth. And then we have Ananias and Sapphira coming along. And, and seeming from Scripture, these are two believers. And, uh, and they uh, perform a very generous act. They sell a property and give a substantial portion of it to the church. And uh, I imagine in today's world, the church leaders would be very happy with that. The problem is that they lied about it. They said they gave the total amount to the church when they only gave part, and God struck them dead. Well, you say that doesn't really reflect unconditional love and acceptance. Uh, God drowning most of the population of the world in the flood certainly doesn't reflect unconditional love and acceptance. God's uh, destruction of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is another uh, expression that God does not love and accept unconditionally. And and someone might say, well, yeah, but that's Old Testament stuff. How about the New Testament? And well, we, we talked about Ananias and Sapphira, but we also have the situation of the... Uh, church in Corinth that uh, uh, during the communion service, rather than being sensitive toward people who have less, there were some people in the, the church that, that brought a, a really big box lunch and, and stuffed themselves while others looked on hungrily. And God said, or Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians 11.30, for this cause Many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep, or many uh, many die. And, and God apparently smote some of these people dead for for this act of selfishness. Or we find the tribulation ahead, and and we we find uh, Book of Revelation talking about hundred pound hailstones falling on people, and 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 that certainly does not reflect unconditional acceptance. And and then there's the issue of an eternal hell, which which also uh, indicates that God does not accept those people unconditionally. So many, many portions of Scripture, many passages of Scripture shows that this is not biblical, and yet it has been embraced by contemporary evangelicals. And And again, it's a dangerous concept because really it licenses selfishness. One of the... Uh, Results of this is that uh, there's uh, there's very little preaching on sin anymore, and the reason mm-hmm. is that doesn't fit into the contemporary evangelical template. You write about um, the remedy for licensed selfishness, and that is agape love. That's not something politics can produce. It's not something that entertainment culture can produce. This is the the function of the church. Can you talk a bit about how we? Um, resist this licensed selfishness that is so prevalent 
in the secular community as well as within the church? Well, first of all, we need to get back to the understanding and recognizing the authority of God. When you think about unconditional acceptance, uh, if, if we believe that God accepts us unconditionally, that really undermines the authority of God. That means uh, God does not exercise his authority toward us. We can live any way we want to. We can, we can uh, neglect God's commands. Uh, we can neglect the teaching of the scripture, and God's just as happy with us uh, while we do that. So it undermines God's authority. We need to get back to where we recognize that, that God is a God of authority. He tells us how to live, and we need to be obedient to that. And the consequences when we're not, we lose fellowship, uh, we lose reward, we lose his blessing. In fact, scripture says he doesn't even listen to our prayers. Uh, we need to get back to the authority of Scripture. Uh, as I've already mentioned, uh, this concept just ignores many, many passages of Scripture. Uh, contemporary evangelicals tend to per- uh, cherry-pick their Scriptures that they, uh, that they uh, teach and preach on, and they ignore so many others that don't fit into this template of unconditional acceptance. And then we need to, to get back to where we, uh, we exercise the disciplines necessary to live a mm-hmm. godly life. Unconditional acceptance has really weakened us. We, it's, it's, it's like a, a, a football player going out there, but not, not doing any exercises. And, 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 and because of that, we've become weak and we need to regain the, the, uh, spiritual muscle to uh, fight in the culture war. Well, we certainly are in a culture war, and you write about that in the book, Licensing Selfishness. In the last chapter, you include a plan that would enable evangelicals to win the culture war. Can you give us a bit of an overview of that plan, how we can influence the culture around us in a way that will restore what's been lost? Well, I sure can. And this, for me, is a is a very significant and, and a frustrating issue in a way. Uh, I, I, I saw a uh, television special or a YouTube special last night on, uh, on America. And uh, in it, they made the point that the church is, is the greatest threat to the left in this country, that, that we have the power to, to uh, overcome the, the forces of the left in this country and restore righteousness and decency and so forth. Why aren't we? What, what is the reason why, why we are not uh, exercising the power that God has given us? And uh, I list several factors. Uh, one of them is corporate prayer. The Apostle Paul in First Timothy chapter 2 says that, uh, that uh, corporate prayer uh, is one of the, the major uh, factors that we need to give attention to in the church. He, he says there, first of all, that prayer needs to be made, talking about prayer within the church. Most church services we go to today have very little prayer. We have people praying individually, but in terms of church prayer, it is practically, practically non-existent. But a major factor is unity. Uh, evangelicals today do not have a unified approach to fighting the culture war. We, we are splintered. We, we uh, 
do the, our major fighting through parachurch organizations. And they do a great job. I think about American Family Association, American Research Council, and others mm-hmm. doing a great job in, in terms of as, as much as they can do as, as individual organizations. But, but without unity, without a unified approach, uh, uh, there is a very limited amount to what we could accomplish. If the evangelical church, and I'm not suggesting that we all meet in the same building or anything, but but I I am suggesting that if we had something like a a, a unifying organization like a, like a uh, uh, social action center that that under which all evangelicals would would come together and join in the culture war, uh, we could have a great influence. But we don't have that kind of coordinated effort and and because of that uh, uh the uh, the secular world just defeats us at almost every turn for example uh right now a major problem is social media and mm-hmm. we see this in the news almost every day they so social media uh blocking uh, conservative and christian messages and uh well, it, 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 uh, there there are probably about 30 million evangelical Christians in the country today. Well, we could have our own social media, and uh, and it could be as big as Facebook. It could be as big as Twitter, and it, it wouldn't have to be necessarily labeled as Christian. It could be um, just the good social media, but it could be controlled by Christians and. Uh, and because it's not labeled Christian, many, many unsaved people, many people in the secular world could join in and it could be a dominant force as, as influential as Facebook and as Twitter. But because of our lack of unity, we can't do that. And, uh, and therefore we are victimized by, uh, by these forces. Well, there's so Think much another, more. Uh, Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say there's so much more in your book that we won't have time to to get into. Um, But again, the title is Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. Now, where can our listeners acquire a copy of the book and follow um, the social media, your blog that you uh, write on on a regular basis? Uh, You can uh, can get the book almost at every outlet, Amazon or uh, Nook or uh, it's in uh, both print form and it's in the electronic form, ebook form. So uh, it's, it's available almost, almost anywhere. Uh, and my blog, the uh, actually I've, I've changed the name of my blog. It's truthforyou.com. T r u t h f o r and the letter u. dot com. And uh, I would uh, love to have people uh, tune into my uh, my blog, and and I try to to uh, write to that every week. Well, uh, the book is absolutely fascinating, and I'm sorry we don't have more time to go in depth because there's a lot of depth in the book that we didn't get to. But I thank you for taking the time to uh, join us here today. And again, I would encourage our listeners to read Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. Dr. Brownback, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Georgine. I appreciate it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, Washington's 2022 primary election has come and gone, and the first round of results were posted shortly after the ballot drop-off deadline at 8 p.m. last night. In the uh, race for the U.S. House of Representatives, the 3rd Congressional District, um, uh, the race was, um, I guess, the top two in the state of Washington uh, received the uh, the nomination. It's not like Oregon's primaries. Washington uses the top two open primary format. It means candidates from all political parties compete in single contests for each elected position, and the top two vote getters advance to what is essentially a runoff in the general election. Doesn't matter if they're both Republican, if they're both Democrat. The runoff doesn't have to be between a Democrat and a Republican under the top two format. Well, two candidates from the same party could potentially come out on top in the primary and take both slots on the November ballot. Well, in the uh, third congressional district in the state of Washington, um, Marie Perez with 32 percent, Jamie um, uh, Herrera Butler with 24 percent. That's uh, from earlier today in the U.S. Senate race. um, uh, Patty Murray with 54 percent. Tiffany Smiley with 32 percent was the call on uh, on those two. And for the Washington state secretary of state uh, at 41 percent, Steve Hobbs. Uh, topping that race. The closest runner-up, Julie Anderson, with 13%. We also learned today that Republican Congresswoman Jackie Walorski was killed in a car crash earlier today, midday Eastern Time. The uh, Republican representative of Indiana was killed in the car crash today, along with a member of her uh, county's GOP and a member of her congressional team. The accident happened at about 12.32 p.m., in Elkert County on a roadway when a northbound passenger car traveled left of center and collided head on with a southbound vehicle. Uh, that's according to local media. The representative, Zachary Potts, with the St. Joseph County Republican Party, her communications director, a director, Emma Thompson, and the driver of the other car all uh, died as a result of injuries. A statement from the uh, a congresswoman's campaign, uh, or I should say congressional office, released after the incident was shared on Twitter by House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, read, uh, Dean Swihart, Jackie's husband, was just informed by the Elkhart County Sheriff's Office that Jackie was killed in a car accident this afternoon. She has returned home to be with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I take a great deal of consolation in that reference, as I'm certain will her family. Please keep her family in your thoughts and prayers. We will have uh, no further comment at this time. So a representative from Congress killed in a car accident, along with some associates uh, earlier in the day. Um, It reminds you that... There's no guarantee that when you hop in your car to drive home from work that you're going to make it there. There's no guarantee that uh, you won't um, have some sort of medical emergency in the middle of the night. I certainly had that experience. One thing we can be absolutely certain of, as was the case with Representative Walarski, uh, that she went home to be with her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. She wasn't just involved in what's happening in Washington. She didn't put her hope and trust in decisions she and her colleagues will be making. She wasn't uh, planning on uh, what happens in terms of legislation to direct the course of her future. Her hopes were not dangling on uh, what may or may not happen in the White House. She had put her faith and her confidence and her hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so her family, um, her friends, her colleagues, her uh, churchmen, they recognize that she went home to be with the Lord and we would do well to do the same. Now, we certainly talk here a lot about what's going on in Washington and Olympia or Salem around the country, what the culture is looking like, what popular uh, entertainment and so on, the trends. But uh, we just cover those things to 
gain some understanding of what it is that we've we're called to live in and amongst and how we uh, can be salt and light in that environment. Our hope and our confidence rests solely exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ so that whatever happens like uh, Representative uh, Wilorski, uh, we will one day return home to be with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please keep her family in your prayers. Jackie Wilorski, uh, she not only perished, but um, a couple members of her staff and associates uh, perished with her, as well as the driver who apparently crossed the median uh, to hit the vehicle, the SUV. She and her um, uh, associates were uh, driving in on the opposite direction. So do keep uh, keep them in your prayers. All right. Well, we're just about out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Also want to remind you that Fish Fest is coming up on the 20th. For all the important details, go to kpdq.com. It will be here before you know it. And uh, this is the first time in two years that Fish Fest has is back. And so it's going to be a great opportunity for folks to come together around some great music and a festival. So uh, do check out all the important details at kpdq.com. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.